Ramble. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Welcome back to the Curious Podcast. I'm Josh Peck, and you are the listener. I am the host. I am the person that leads you through this experience, but it doesn't work without you. So thank you for returning. I hope you're having a great morning. Um, Welcome. Wow. What a week. Guys, I'm sick. And I know that you're listening to my voice right now, and you're like, "Where, where are these husky tones coming from? Because I like it. Well, it's coming from an infection. It's coming from uh, that I could, I might have the pneumonia. Mm-hmm. That's right. So start feeling bad for me. Yeah. Because celebrities get sick too. And you think it's so easy. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, my God. I feel weird. I know I'm not a celebrity, but even making that joke made me feel uncomfortable. Like made me want to punch myself in the face. Um... But yeah, I'm a little under the weather, you know? It's what happens. Life has a way of bringing you down to uh, to reality. You know, you think like, I'm humming here, baby. I'm working. I don't need that much sleep. I don't need to eat much. Hydration? What's that about? I'm quite all right. I'm not afraid. Maybe I won't wash my hands regularly. I know that's kind of gross. But you know what I'm saying, right? We all sort of get that, that feeling like that we're just, not, you know... We're impenetrable. We're impervious. But then sickness comes and, you know, and germs are like, nah, homie, I'm about to take you down. Take you down a notch or seven, right? Get you all types of sick. Make you, you know, have visions of when you were like seven curled up, not feeling good, eating chicken noodle soup while grandma massaged your head. Or grandpa, you know. So that's how I'm feeling right now. I'm not feeling so super tough. I'm feeling like young Josh in need of um, some, you know, some sort of sustenance and some sort of reassurement that everything's going to be all right. I had a great weekend. I went up to San Luis Obispo with my my in-laws, my lovely, uh, my wife's lovely family to visit her cousin who just started going to college there. And uh, it was very... It's a very good experience. It's not something I would normally do. I drove three hours Friday night, spent the whole day with my wife's family, and then drove back Sunday morning. And it's not that I don't want to be with them because I love being with them. It's more getting over myself and the inconvenience of like, ah, with the driving and the checking into the hotel and the thing with the thing and the thing. And it's like, God, I can just make anything awful in my head, you know? I like to see things 10 steps down the road and they almost always are not good for me. That's the bend that my mind likes to put on things. You know, it just, I like to project how uncomfortable situations will be for me. And thus I make a game time immediate decision that it would be better if I just avoided the entire thing and stayed in my little world with my little routine that has proven to me to be comfortable and safe and not really like push me in any healthy directions. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's not like negative, you know, I'm sober, right? So like I go to the gym and I, you know, shoot YouTube stuff and I work on the podcast and I audition for movies or TV or whatever. And like, that's fine. Like that's, you know, God, I love that my, 
my entire routine is just completely self. It's like I wasn't like, and then I go help my mom to, you know, you know, we go, to, and then I go for dancing lessons with my mom, or I go on a wonderful contemplative walk with my pregnant wife. No, none of that. It's all about me. It's all self-serving. It's all about work. It's all about Josh. Well, it's not going to be all about Josh because I'm about to have a kid. It's going to be all about that kid and my wife who's beautiful and wonderful and like carrying that child. And it's incredible and it's getting very real because she's like almost there. And like you start to, you know, initially when you're first, you get pregnant and the doctor's like, there it is. And you're like, there what is? And they're like, that's a baby. You're like, are you sure? Because it looks like a shadow. And they're like, it's a baby. Trust us. I do this for a living. I went to school for 10 years. And I'm like, whatever you say, doc, because I feel like that heartbeat could just be like a crazy EDM sound machine. And then you go back like a month later and it's still a shadow. But slowly but surely that thing, you know, grows into like a human, a thing. And now when you're like in the last sort of trimester, all you know, it just looks like your baby's in like a human sleeping bag, really. And it's just, you know that there's like a full on person there. And one day, sooner than later, they're going to come out and the nurse is going to wash them off and then they are all yours. And then it's like this lifetime engagement, this relationship that begins that day and God willing never ends um, until the parent sort of graduates to the next level, which is probably nothing, you know, but whatever you believe. And it's a weird feeling. It's a weird, weird feeling. And I'm in, uh, I'm in anticipation of it. I think it's going to be a wonderful thing. I'm in anticipation of how my, my life is going to be rearranged and sort of the upcoming um, disturbance to my routine because um, that's what a kid does. And that's cool because what do I need my routine for? You know what I mean? I spend enough time thinking about me. This entire rant is about me. And I think being able to focus on another human being thing, like satient being who needs my help constantly, is going to be a worthwhile endeavor. And um, I really want to be helpful and of service to that kid and my wife and sort of the whole thing. So it's very exciting. It's, it's very wonderful. I'll keep you guys, I'll keep giving you the play-by-play because, you know, well, what else, you know? Well, I got nothing else to say. I mean, could I talk about Kanye? Sure. Could I talk about Trump? Yes. Could I talk about fucking, you know, uh, the Lakers and uh, LeBron being on the Lakers? Okay, sure. But listen, everyone's talking about that and probably in a more enjoyable comedic way than I. So all I can really do is give you insight into what's going on with me and hope that you have like a slight bit of um, identifying and you feel that there's a certain level of similarities and maybe you find just like the slightest bit of reassurance that you are not alone in your feelings because I am having similar ones maybe or maybe not or maybe you're like yo this kid is weird I've never felt anything that he feels and also 
I'm going to move on from this podcast. It's been a nice run, but he talks too much. So, and that could be it too. Um, this week's pod, Dave Coulier, the greatest. I really want to call him Dave Cool. Yay, yay. Um, what a dream. He's just such a good dude. I, you know, I've met Dave, obviously, because I, I made a show with John Stamos, and through him I've met Bob Saget and Dave Coulier, his cohorts, his brothers, the three uncles from Full House. But they're all three of them are so much more than that. But I know that that's like, you know, the buzzword. It's the thing that that people know best. But I don't care about all that. Because Dave Coulier has had an incredible life. He has come up with some of the greatest comedians. He is one of the greatest comedians. And um, he has an affinity for fart humor, which I think is underappreciated in this day and age. And can also is a wonderful conduit to bring us all together more. But in all seriousness, I just think uh, Dave is a sweetheart, a salt-of-the-earth person. And I couldn't believe that he was down to do my podcast. So... Hope you guys enjoy it. Here's Dave. Okay. Wow. What a moment. What a moment. This feels right. I think so. I'm wearing. Uh, I'm wearing the right outfit. And by that you mean nothing. I'm wearing my. Uh, well, <laughs> maybe you see nothing. <laughs> That's right. Me though, I've got just the. Perfect underpants on today. What are, what are we talking here? I wear Duluth trading underpants. Tell me more. And Canadians <laughs> and a lot of people in the Midwest say under underpants. Mm. Uh, some other people say underwear. But ah. Duluth trading, um, I don't know if you've ever seen their commercials. They do no pinch, no stink, no sweat. Perfect. Yeah. Well, and that's what I got going for? right now. <laughs> right. <laughs> nice little trifecta. Absolutely. <laughs> I feel like they would sell that underwear at Bass Pro Shop. Um, I don't know if they do, but that they should. Right. I'll or tell you. Cabela's, perhaps. Or Cabela's, yeah. Yeah. Or like an REI store. I can tell that I just sounded super butch to you. You really did. Because I knew those stores. <laughs> it's, it's only because my father-in-law frequents them because he's a real man. And I, I was... I was at Bass Pro Shops uh, with my wife last week. I would believe that. I, I got a new uh, spin caster and a new um, rod. You're you're a guy's guy. Uh, I like doing uh, stuff with guys, and I like doing stuff that guys do. Yeah. Yeah. Fishing. Uh, fishing, golf. Uh, I played ice hockey this morning. Right. Uh, I enjoyed doing that. I like, uh, you know, I like... Uh, ATVs and motorsports. I like boats. I like all that stuff. Action figures. Action figures. I bring them with me whenever I do any of those things. <laughs> I like that. You know, it's a couple friends. It's usually my Joey Gladstone doll really? from 1993. Yeah. D- does that exist? It does. And I gave them out. Uh, here's the story. <laughs> when we were doing Full House, when we became a hit, all the merchandise, of course, comes out. Sure. So then they do a Full House house that you could buy. And it was Danny Tanner and the girls, and then Jesse had a guitar, and Joey had to buy separately for some reason. No. Yes. All right. So I met the head of, I think it was Tiger Toys, Tiger Electronics, and he said, hey, I have a zillion of these Joey action figures. Would you like them? And I said, ship them to me. And I'm not kidding you, Josh, probably... 10 big cardboard boxes of Joey Gladstone dolls showed up at my house. So I didn't know what to do with them. So every 
Christmas around the holidays, I would send them out as a Christmas ornament that people could hang on their tree. How thoughtful. And I would write a stupid little saying like, if you don't like this, you can use it as a uh, fireplace starter log. I like that. And uh, people tell me every year, you know, we're just uh, just calling to say we're hanging your Joey Gladstone <laughs> action figure on our tree right now. I can't believe they use your doll as the upsell. Like it was, I think it was the downsell. I think it was. All right, you want the cool stuff, Joey's. You know, if you want him, he's by himself in a right. corner. Nine ninety nine. <laughs> he's in the bin part of That's the toy right. I'm, I'm like the small, uh, like the bins when you go to the to the uh, the drugstore. You go to like a CVS and they have like the little travel brands. Mm. You'd see one of my action figures in there, like the miss. It's like the misfit toy section. <laughs> um. And yet, here we are on stage at Fuller House. We are. And this is your first time here. It's my first time here. And as I was telling you on the walkover, I can't imagine how it is for you. Because for me, just as a one-time child who watched the show, it's out of body. Uh, It's a little surreal because, as I was telling you, we're back here at Warner Brothers on stage 24. Right. And that's where we shot the original show. And then after us, Friends was on this stage, and then a show called Joey with Matt LeBlanc, and then uh, Mike and Molly with uh, Melissa McCarthy. What did you say it, this stage has? What kind of energy? It's got some good juju, man. It's yeah. got the syndication. Um, it's got the good syndication vibe going. A lot of rich people have worked here. A lot of rich people, <laughs> yes, who started off very poor. Yes. <laughs> and... I can't even, you know, it's funny and I'm interested to hear your thoughts because I, you know, I did Drake and Josh and that was, I feel like is sort of the, the younger, the younger brother of, of Full House in the respect of like, we, we had a similar thing. It just was never at the heights of what Full House was. And so people nonstop because everyone is so overly nostalgic. It's like, when's the reunion? Let's go. We're ready. And to me, I think this is brilliant because you guys came up with a great idea. And so it totally worked to bring it all back. And with Drake and Josh, I'm always like, there's, there's no good idea. We're not coming back for the reunion until someone has a great idea. Because I don't want to shit on what we did. Well, it's, it would just be, you know, Drake and Josh with an updated operating system. It's 2.0. And you just have to figure out where would these two guys be at this point in their lives. Right. And I think that becomes the funny hook. Like, okay, here they are. They've spent all this time apart. They've done a full circle and they're back together because of blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, they're insurance salesmen or whatever or something kooky. But was there reticence for you when this was all coming together and and in the development stage to say, like, we made something so special. How how do we top it? Well, I didn't think you could top it. I think I think you can enhance it in some way, but I don't think you can top, you know, a show that started in 1987 and has been syndicated in over 100 countries around the world. And we've never been off TV. You can't top that because that's. That's a one-off. That happens like once yes. with a show. But what you can do is you can kind of get the band back together again and kind of enhance it. And that's what we've done. We knew we weren't going to reinvent Coca-Cola because people love Coca-Cola so much. Right. So what we thought was... Let's Vanilla keep, Coke. Well, uh, sort of. Okay. Coke Let's zero. serve them more Coke, but just you know, make sure that all the familiar faces are sitting around drinking Coke with you. Right. 
And having had that break, when you show up on day one to come back and do this, I mean, I imagine to a certain extent you fall into your same old rhythms, and yet there's got to be a part where your brain is like, this looks familiar, yeah. <laughs> and yet... It was trippy as hell. Right. The acid trip. It was. I, You know, because we're talking about a show that was canceled in 1995. Was it canceled? It was canceled. We... we um, entertained the idea of doing a couple more seasons we were on abc at the time we thought about and this was kind of thrown into the mix at the time when we were about to get canceled of the wb network would like to pick us up for two years huh. and at that point uh after 192 episodes i think people uh certainly the producers were burned out trying to come up with new ideas for us sure and you know how many more stories can we tell uh, I, the the general consensus was that let's move on. We've we've done something that people really love, right? Uh, and it's kind of the same mindset of how are we going to top what we've already done on ABC? Yeah, go out. But I had no idea when it came back. The Josh, the first day I came back here, uh, they were building the set, and I said I want to go. Just I just want to go and kind of be there and immerse myself in it again because it's so trippy being yeah. you know making this you know this complete circle and so i came and i watched them building the sets and i saw the living room and i was by myself and i started to cry and and it came out of left field out of nowhere i'm not a crier <laughs> sure but i just stood there and just cried would you call it a weep a sob did you hold it back was it a single tear i had to hold my own wiener really while i was crying and and just for comfort i like just that. to comfort myself it is one of the warmest places on the body it is when it, well my dad always told me that if your hands are cold just put them in your pockets next to your package god bless that man <laughs> A lot of wise things. A lot of wise things. <laughs> I could tell. <laughs> but it was an emotional moment. And it, I never, ever expected it to be that way. Are you a guy, I'm fascinated with people's nostalgia and, and sort of their need to go back in time. Because for me, I'm a no look back guy. I like, maybe it's because I was so fat as a kid that once I corrected that, I'm like, oh, no need to revisit that. <laughs> like, let's just burn those yearbooks. You're in amazing shape now. I met you when you were in amazing shape. I, I didn't you. know. I didn't know the fat kid. I was, I was fat and many people knew that child. And so <laughs> I sort of, I think mentally or emotionally closed the door on that. And yet. So many people are fascinated with bringing back the things that they loved in their childhood. So I guess it's a two-part question of, are you a go-back type of guy? And also, what do you, what do you think that fascination with is with going there and, and bringing back those old things? Well, because if you look at both of our shows, I think for an entire generation of kids, it became video comfort food. Yes. And it was a safe place uh, to watch television. It was a place where they knew they could get something from the show that they might not necessarily be getting from their real life. Right. And it's a fantasy. And so, uh, so I think, you know, I, I think we created something that uh, is nostalgic for people. At that point, it becomes very emotional 
for them. They get very emotionally attached, very psychologically attached. And for all those kids who watched our shows, those become the good old days for them. And and that is a bit of nostalgia. And what do you think of, because like I agree, and yet there was a part of me, like I never wanted to see the Family Matters cast get back together. <laughs> and I well, love that show. I don't know if you could do Urkel nowadays. <laughs> yeah, you know, like right? Urkel growing up, you kind of, how do you pull that off? Yeah, or like. Unless I he has a son now oh. who's just like dad. Could you imagine? Yeah. I mean, and and yet it seems as though, I, I think to your point, you're right in the sense of, it's much in like the the energy of Norman Lear. Like when you have shows about family, and people grow up watching these things, it's instantly relatable. And there's something so much more special about allowing a TV show into your home than perhaps going out to a movie. I feel like that feels more removed in a different world. Right, it does. And when you come into someone's home, it's more personal. Right. Because you're sitting there and you're eating dinner or you're having a sandwich or you're, you know, you're home from school and... Uh, you're in your, your own element, you're in your environment where you live and you're coming over for a visit for, you know, for a half hour. And and so I think TV is very personal for people. And back when we were doing our shows, it was appointment television. You knew that a certain day and a certain time your show was going to be on. It's, it's less of that now because a show gets released and you watch the entire season in one sitting and it's done. Sure. So I, I don't think it's as personal as it used to be because, you know, you would promo a show for a week, the next episode's coming, and there was all that anticipation. And now you you promo an entire season is coming out. Yeah. And then you you get your sugar buzz and you're done. You get your sugar high and boom, it's gone. Yeah, you dump it. Yeah. But like, I, I don't know how you are. I can't allow myself the full binge watch experience. And my wife loves it. Yeah, She'll, mine too. I mean, they knock it out. Like the day it comes out, Yeah, they're like, I'm eight episodes into Stranger Things. I got two <laughs> left. It's not even 11 o'clock. I'm like, holy shit, what have yeah. you been doing? Yeah. Like I, if I love something, I want to mm, savor it. Yeah. yeah. Right? Well, going back to your question, is it hard to go back? Um you know, I, I am kind of a let's go back, uh, person. And I think it's because maybe it's because I'm older. Mm. Uh, I'm 58 and I have a lot of memories to look back on that are really fun to kind of, uh, go back and say, Oh, that was really fun back then. Even though I've never watched full house. I've seen two episodes with my son who was little at the time. But I never wanted to, I mean, maybe someday I'll have my, uh, you know, I'll have my full house marathon. <laughs> I'll probably party. be hooked up to machines and IVs by then, you know. <laughs> ah, it was kind of funny back then. I imagine you naked <laughs> in a massive screening room by Absolutely. yourself. Yes. Peeing in, in milk jars. Very Howard Hughes-esque. <laughs> Absolutely. And I would like to be there for you. I'll just be your Postmates. Of course. Just, I'll be very paranoid of germs. <laughs> yes. I'll be, I'll be very fastidious with washing my hands constantly. That sounds incredible. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when you finished the show, you never watched it again? No, um, because we had another show to do. And when I was doing Full House, 
concurrently at the same time, I was doing the Muppet Babies cartoon on CBS. Mm. I was doing the real Ghostbusters cartoon on ABC. And I was hosting a show on ABC called America's Funniest People for four years. Right. And so I really didn't have time to kind of just watch anything. It was kind of like, what am I doing after this? What's, What's up next? You know, so it was... You know, it was it was a time that w- the work was very condensed and it was just constant for for nine years of my life, and then everything got canceled at the same time. And and speaking of, and this is a good segue when you talk about the the, you know, you've done so many cartoons and so many things with your voice and your ability for impressions. When did the when was the first impression discovered? Like, was it six-year-old yeah, Dave? It, my brother and I, my brother Dan is the funniest person I know. And like, really, really funny? He's really funny. Yeah. He, his brain comes up with stuff that makes me laugh so hard. It's because he, he's known me my whole life, right. you know? And uh, we used to have bunk beds when we were kids. And my brother actually taught me how to do impressions. And I had, I had the top bunk, he had the bottom bunk, and... At night, we would fall, be falling asleep, and he would start doing impressions of our neighbors. Mm. And so he kind of taught me the inflections of, oh, my gosh, he sounds exactly like Mr. Hooper across the street. And so we would improvise these little plays with all the neighbors' voices, and we used to, call, we used to uh, just piss my dad off because it would be one in the morning, and we'd be laughing so hard and like banging on our beds, and my dad would run in and say, I'm tired of hearing Mr. Hooper. It's enough. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> and then we used to sit on the front porch, and we used to call it narrating the neighborhood, and anybody who went by, I'd go, all right, I got the next guy. And it would be some guy walking by or one of the neighbors, and we would just trade off doing voices of these characters. Hey everyone, this is Tom from the Curious Ad Department. I'm a Libra. Not that you asked. (laughs) Anyway, we've got a quick little advertisement for you, and then we'll get right back to that kooky, fun-loving, young, jovial, laugh-a-minute Josh Peck. And let me tell you, him around the office, it's just a a ray of sunshine. It's a slice of adorable, and I want seconds. Am I right? Anyway, here's the advertisement. Stitch Fix. Oh my gosh. It's an online personal styling service that finds and delivers clothes, shoes, and accessories to fit your body, budget, and lifestyle. Just go to stitchfix.com slash curious. Tell them your sizes, what styles you like, and how much you want to spend on each item. You'll be paired with your very own personal stylist who will handpick five items to send right to your door. Then you try them on, you pay only for what you love, and return the rest. Shipping, exchanges, and returns are always free. Yes, Look, guys, I recently signed up for Stitch Fix. It was easy. It was like a couple questions. They didn't ask me like, you know, sometimes when you try to sign up for things, they're like, oh, what was your mom's favorite hobby when she was six? And I'm like, guys, I don't understand why you need to know that. No, it was just like, hey, do you like this color? And what's your size here? And are you down with this pattern, perhaps? And then all of a sudden, I'm getting beautiful, dope clothes that somehow they got in my head and they figured out that I would love them. Anyway, get started now at stitchfix.com slash curious and you'll get an extra 25% off when you keep all five items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash curious to get started today. Stitchfix.com slash curious. Hi, this is Tom. We're getting back to the show. Thank you for listening. Who are you? 
We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The people who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make the show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to listenerq, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q dot com slash curious and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered into a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Yeah. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash curious. That's ListenerQ.com slash curious. What, in your opinion, is because anyone who's got like a brilliant ear and depth for doing voices and impressions to me as an outsider, and I'm just like an amateur with it, but like I find that you have to find a way in to a new voice. You have yeah. to find an entrance or like like whenever I hear like a great Obama impression or like it, it's always the entrance of, ah, oh, folks. Like, yeah. uh, uh. like there's that gruffness or uh, like there's always a sound or something that, and like for you, how do you, how do you find a way in? Uh, it's either in my ear or it's not. Right. And it just happens immediately to where I, I hear someone and I just can do it. Or uh, it's just, you know, like people can do Donald Trump and I cannot do Donald Trump. Do you, have you no tried? Matter, you, you know, it's either in there or it's not. And I just kind of know my limitations. And there's so many guys who do it so well. Have you seen the animated series, Our American President or whatever it's called? I think Maybe. It's, it's really funny. And the guy who does the Donald Trump voice on there, it's so dead on and so brilliant that it's like, oh, yeah, you know. I like obscure ones like Albert Brooks, you know, and I, uh, okay, now hear me out. This is crazy. <laughs> hold on. Hold on. I've got you here. <laughs> hold on. This is going to be great. Now, hold on. I've lost you, haven't I? That's Albert. I've lost you. That's crazy. No, I'm right here. <laughs> but that's like, yeah. but the, that's crazy. Like, that's a go-to Albertism. Yes, right? it is. Yes. Yeah. Or like with Chris Walken, who everyone on earth does. It's like that. Wow. You know, like yeah. there's always, there's just right. like a little. Well, the key to doing Chris Rock is you don't close your mouth. You always keep your mouth like this. Right. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. You don't want to do that with your kids. Right. You've got to spend time with your kids. Yes. You never close your mouth. And then and then it also becomes a cadence, right? Because Chris has such a he cadence. He chops it up. Yeah. And he says everything twice. That's right. You don't talk to your children like that. You don't talk to your kids like that. Right. It's almost like a preacher in a way. Well, that's so fascinating that you say that because I've heard Marin talk about Sam Kinison mm -hmm. and how so much of his stuff was derived by like big tent evangelical traveling preachers. Yeah. And how like... They would say things in a certain way to grab people's attention. Like they'd repeat and say, you have to say it like this. You have to say it like this. Sure. Like repeat, but change the rhythm on the second repetition. I was there the night Sam came up with the scream. He didn't always do the scream. What did he do I, before? I was a doorman at the comedy store when Sam Kennison came to town. And so... Uh, Sam would just come up on stage and he would just kind of, um, you know, he had a big, big presence and you couldn't help but listen to him no matter what he was selling you comedically. And so 
I was at the Westwood Comedy Store, and I was there with a comedian named Alan Stevens, who later was in this, um, the Bad Boys of Comedy with Carl LeBove and Mitchell Walters and Sam, and they, the Outlaws of Comedy, I think they were called. And so I was at the Westwood Store one night, and I'm um, working as a doorman, and there's maybe 10 people in the audience, and mm. Alan Stevens was there. And uh, uh, Sam goes up, and there's a couple in the front row, and maybe eight people scattered around. And he does the whole thing where, uh, you know, he says, uh, you married? Huh? Are you? Well, this is going to be the face you're going to see. And he did the, ah, the scream. And it was so funny. And I looked at Alan, and he looked back at me, and he was like, that is really really brilliant so sam came off stage and i was like sam you gotta do that scream thing like every nut that is brilliant he's like really you think it and it was like i was there with alan stevens and alan came i was doing a casino and alan surprised me uh with carl lebeau this is about maybe six months ago and uh, i said remember the night when we were in westwood he goes sam scream and i went how crazy was that that you and i were there and and to, but he was Sam trench coat beret yet? Uh, no, no, he would wear a suit. Really, Sam wore a suit and tie. And was he? And this was kind of before the sex, drugs, and rock and roll of it all, right? He hadn't fully procured his. Yeah, but he was always pretty wild, you know. Mm. Him and his brother Kevin and and Carl LeBeau, that group was always kind of a little bit crazy, you know. They were on a whole different arc of what. You know, a lot of comedians were doing because I got to see all those guys. I, you know, I shared the stage with Robin Williams and Richard Pryor and Leno and Letterman and, you know, Saget and Shandling. And, uh, you know, just it, that was my group, you know, um, and, you know, it was such an incredible time to be a stand up because you had these masters every night and you'd have to follow Seinfeld or you'd have to follow Gary Shandling and you couldn't you couldn't lay off you couldn't go up on those nights and try material you had to go up and just you know fight for your time on that stage and try and kill but at the time when you're living in that space and you're surrounded by these people that would eventually become like you know titans and and giants of of the industry was it just like there's Jerry working out a new bit or like there's Shanling. Yeah, because Seinfeld wasn't famous yet. Saget right. wasn't famous yet. I wasn't. Um, uh, Leno was right on the precipice. He was doing his Tonight shows, and so was Letterman. So you knew those guys were already, you know, off in a different stratosphere. Who did um, you see it most clearly with? Because I hear that a lot about Seinfeld from other comedians, where they're like, you know, early Tonight Show, there was just a clarity to him. His his craftsmanship was there. Like, who was very clearly going to explode to you? Uh, you knew Jerry was going to because he he had likability, he had stage presence, he had incredible delivery. Clean. And he was clean, and he was a wordsmith. It was about crafting the perfect sentence to convey uh, comedically what he was talking about. Right. And so it was brilliantly crafted you know like george carlin was a wordsmith and his words were so important and the inflection of those words and the way that he manipulated sentences to give effect 
Um, and by then, Car- Carlin, Carlin was, was already a huge a star. Pryor giant. was huge. You know, you knew Leno and Letterman were both on their way. This is 1979, 1980 that I'm talking about. But then you'd see guys like Jerry hit the stage, and you it was remarkable. He was just good from day one. And um, Gary Shandling was brilliant. I went with Gary to his first eight Tonight Show appearances, and I used to punch up jokes with Gary. And Gary was just, you knew he was going to just be on this path to stardom. It was it was really fun to be a part of that. And Gary was a great friend of yours. Yes. You guys yeah. were super close. We were very close. We used to go. We had a cabin up in Big Bear. And we used to go and uh, write jokes up there all the time. And it was just like the perfect spot because, you know, we had nothing else to do other than sit in an aluminum boat on the lake and uh, write jokes. Yeah. Do you have you observed a through line or any recognizable attribute in the people like the Garys and the Jerry's that you can sort of attribute to their success, like insane ambition or you know obsession? Like what what would you? It was a laser focus, right? Um, and you saw that there were plenty of people that I saw coming up that were really talented or really funny. And it's kind of like, almost like, you know, being a college sports star, you get to a certain level and you're in college and you know, you're, you're winning the Heisman and this and that. But then when you go to the pros, there's that jump, there's something that is not just physical, it's mental. And Making that jump is, uh, is, you know, where you're either going to make it as a star or you're just going to be a guy that kind of was. Right. And with all of those guys, you know, Bob Saget, uh, Dennis Miller, Louis Anderson, um, Jim Carrey, Seinfeld, all those guys just had laser focus. And, you know, there was times when uh, I was never a big druggie. Mm. Um, not too late. No, not too late. I'm still trying. Uh, you know, where I would go home and I would write jokes where a lot of comics that I saw go to the wayside were, you know, drinking and doing Coke, you know, on the side of the comedy store till four in the morning, you know? So you never dabbled in the, in the devil's dandruff. I I was never, Colombian. uh, I tried, I tried and I just thought this is like, having a thousand cups of coffee and I don't like it. It's awful. Like what's the, what's the catch to this drug? You a know? thousand cups of coffee that also 10 minutes later makes me hate myself. Oh, it was awful. And fear I, there are people oh, in the bushes. It was awful. I'm like, I'm just going to stick with ice cold beer. Yeah. Solid. <laughs> That's it. That's about as far as I want to go. Yeah. A little sip of Americana. Absolutely. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Um, well, you know, Steve Martin has that great quote that he always says, if, if I do have any God-given talent, it's obsession. Mm-hmm. And that I just, I'm obsessed with certain things. And you see it, how he's applied it to the banjo. Oh, yeah. Like, where I just give something more hours and more time and more focus than anyone else is willing to give it. And so I get a better result. Yeah. Well, it's the, it becomes the outlier's theory of 10,000, you know, if you do something 10,000 times. Right. Um you know, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Uh, certainly it was when I was doing stand-up, I did 42 weeks on the road one year, mm. which is an insane amount of shows. But for me, I was in my early 20s and 
we were all doing that, you know, that was, that was just what you did back then, uh, in order to get better so that when you were on the road, you were honing stuff so that you could come back to the improv or the comedy store in Hollywood and showcase for the tonight show. But what, who was like your, cause now I, I'll talk to standups and I'll get the text from a buddy of mine that's performing, you know, who's like a strong middle at the comedy store and they'll be like, Chappelle's coming. Right. Or like, you know, a few months ago, it was like Louis coming or like these Titans are coming in. It's going to be a surprise set, like get over here. Yeah. And they'll probably go for two hours. Sure. So like for you being like one of the young up and comers in the 70s, who was that for you guys? Was it Pryor? Was it? It was Robin Williams. Really? He just, Steve Martin and Robin Williams just redefined what a comedian could do on stage. Steve Martin had a banjo, wore a white suit and put balloons on his head. Right. And, uh, and he could just go off on these tangents and Robin would come in and it was like the Tasmanian devil hitting the stage. It was just such a whirlwind of, uh, impeccable timing off the cuff, uh, you know, improv, uh, lightning fast references towards, you know, the social strata at the time. And so it suddenly ripped the cover off the ball to where you're like, anything goes now. And I did a set one night. I still have the poster at home. And the lineup was uh, Argus Hamilton, Jimmy Brogan, Jeff yeah. Altman, Bob Saget, Arsenio Hall, me, uh, Robin Williams, and Richard Pryor. That was the show at the main room. That That's night. a fucking good night. That was a good Jesus. night. And uh, I just hit it right with the chemistry in the audience that night. And I just just had one of those sets that was just remarkable for me. Oof. And I had not met uh, Robin Williams yet, but I remember Argus Hamilton, who was the house MC. I think he's still, still there. The house every MC. Saturday night. Uh, it's crazy. He's, hey, Davy, Robin's here. He wants to meet you. <laughs> right. And I was like, okay. And then I'm walking down the hall at the comedy store by myself, and here comes Robin the other way. And Robin started doing this old man impression. He's like, hey, come with me, son. Come with me. And I'm like, okay. So we walked back by the bar in the, the comedy store and we sat down at a table and he's like, that was fucking great. I watched a whole set. Holy yeah. fuck. Jeez. And you're from Detroit. Holy fuck, motherfucker. <laughs> Whoa. So good. And so, so good. Uh, he was so encouraging and he sat with me for about 45 minutes and just really said, you're going to do it. You're so funny. I was doing a bit about E.T. at the time. And uh, I used to hold up a golf club head driver, mm. and that was E.T.'s head, and I would do this whole thing uh, in E.T.'s voice. And uh, he just was so kind. And this guy was already a superstar. He was doing Mork and Mindy, and he had done a movie, Popeye. And, right. And um, it, was, it was remarkable that a guy of his stature took the time to talk to 20-year-old me about uh, what he believed about me. And do you think that where do you, because I agree with you that there's something, you know, that it does take the obsession and the work ethic to be great at comedy. And yet I feel like the seed is born out of necessity for most of us. And like, I, you know, I don't do stand up anymore, but I know that my comedy was born out of deep discomfort Yeah, because it was, it was a coping mechanism because I wanted to keep the world at bay. And it was a, 
and I find it reveals itself more and more that it was a need for control because mm -hmm. I felt so powerless. So I said, if I can control the laugh and the energy in the room with my ability to make you look at me and make you laugh, then I, I can at least have a, a slight reprieve. Yes. It's, uh, the stage becomes a catharsis for whatever kind of inner turmoil you're having. But did you have it as a kid? Like, I did. Where was it I born? did. I, I grew up in, in St. Clair Shores, Michigan. I grew up in an extreme Catholic family, a very large family, and went to Catholic schools. And my parents got divorced at when I was nine. Mm. And it ripped our whole family apart. And Just you God, and your brother? It's me and my brother and my two sisters, Karen and Sharon. And so I'm, uh, there's my two older sisters, then me, then my younger brother. And it completely ripped our family apart. And suddenly I was the kid that people kind of, uh, felt sorry for. I was the only kid in my Catholic community, uh, whose parents were divorced and everybody, I remember moms and dads coming out to me, Hey, I feel really bad if you ever want to come to our house and blah, blah, blah. Cause it just wasn't done then. It wasn't done. Divorce wasn't a, a big thing back then. People stayed together and hated each other. You know? and, <laughs> and after yeah. the, and how was your parents' relationship after the divorce? Was it contentious? It was awful. Yeah. It was awful. And, and, um, you know, they talked badly about each other to us and oh. placed us in the middle. It was all the things that you shouldn't do to <laughs> children. <laughs> Thanks for that mom and dad. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, uh, I had hockey and I had sports. I was playing baseball and I was playing football and I was, I was playing hockey and I was played in the Michigan junior golfers. And so I had all these sports. So I was always around other kids and especially hockey. When you got 20 kids in a locker room, putting your skates on and getting ready to go out on the ice, I had a built-in audience and I started, I took the impressions that I learned with my brother and I started doing impressions of kids on my team or coaches mm. or people that all the kids on my team knew. And we'd be tying our skates and I would start doing these voices and I would make kids on my team laughed so hard that I kind of, you know, used that as a way to prop myself up. You knew it was valuable. It was valuable. And, and hearing those laughs, um, filled a huge void that I wasn't hearing at home because my family, believe it or not, is very funny, but it was a really sad time. And I thought, wow, I need to hear these laughs in the locker room and with all these other kids so that, it overpowers the sadness that I'm going to feel when I go home. And did you notice, or do you notice now that how your siblings dealt with it in different ways? We all dealt with it in very different ways. I would imagine. My brother became extremely introverted and now he's an artist and a classical pianist wow. and uh, does amazing glass sculptures. And so that was the way he kind of harnessed that energy. Uh, my sister Karen has been married five times. Solid. Uh, so that's pretty solid. All right. Um, Giving love a try. Yeah. She over and over again, you know, if it doesn't work, you got to try it again. Are you, are you afraid to like become buddies with her new husband? <laughs> Cause you're like, God, I don't want to get close and then have to drop well, you. Well, my brother said, you know, she's been married so many times. She's starting to repeat names <laughs> right? because she's been married two to toms. two guys named Mike. That's awesome. Yeah. So, um, so there was a lot of pain, uh, throughout um all the way up through high school you know there was a good nine years of my parents don't get along mm. uh it's it's a 
really crappy atmosphere. So I'm going to create a good, fun atmosphere where I can remain positive. Yeah. And that's what comedy was. Take the attention away. Absolutely. And it's funny. I interviewed Lisa Lampanelli and she too talks about, and I, I'm sure, I would imagine many comedians have this moment where she was sitting at the dinner table at nine years old and she repeated I think it was a line from a, a commercial, but she did, said it in a funny voice, and she said, my entire family cracked up, like burst into laughter, and, and it clicked in for me that, oh my God, this is great. And so she's like, so me, of course, I say it again, <laughs> and no one laughs. <laughs> she's like, and the second thought came in to my head of, why are you milking the joke? <laughs> like, just shut up. But yeah. I, I was very fortunate, um, and you've worked with, my friend Mark Sandrowski on Big Bang Theory. Mm. Uh, I had a partner in crime starting in third grade. And Mark Sandrowski, who directs the Big Bang Theory, I think just about every episode, um, I met him in third grade and I was walking up to the front chalkboard and I passed Mark and he was doodling on his notebook. And I was like, wow, those are really funny pictures. And so I finished my thing at the chalkboard and I walk back and I go, hey, what are you drawing? He goes, these are Martians. And I go, they are. <laughs> and I was like, I'm going to hang out with this kid. Right. And so we started drawing comics together and we would write song parodies starting in third grade. And so he was just, you know, my partner in comedy crime all those years. And it was great because his parents were very happily married and very normal. And so I got to spend a lot of time at their house like, oh, this is what it's like when it's normal. Yeah, this is healthy. This is really healthy. So I just kind of naturally gravitated towards uh, Mark and his family and their acceptance of me and being a funny kid. Right. They thought it was great. They thought, oh, there's Mark and Dave. They're going to go off and do something funny. And they and supported we it. Hi, this is Dorothy from the Curious Ad Department. We've got a quick little ad for you, so tell your ears to perk up and get excited because you're about to get sold something great. You know, one of the most important things we do for our health every day is brushing our teeth, yet most of us, we don't do it properly. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Josh, don't tell me I don't know how to brush my teeth. I've been doing it since I was like 11. And then my question back to you would be like, since just 11? That seems like a late time to get started. Anyway, Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, even enjoyable. Because it's got sensitive sonic vibrations gentle enough on your sensitive gums. And it's got a built-in two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides, helping guide a full and even clean. So... I got to tell you, I love Quip because I don't have to think about like replacing my brush heads or like when is the right time. They just, they show up in the mail. Yeah, that's what Quip does for you. Their brush heads are automatically delivered on a dentist recommended schedule every three months for just $5. So that's why I love Quip and Quip starts at just $25. And if you go to getquip.com slash curious right now, you get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush. That's right. That's your first refill pack free at G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash curious. Well, let's get back to the show. I too, like growing up, and 
I had my mom who who was the greatest and is the greatest and and did her best to supply a normal household environment but mm-hmm. I was an only child and I didn't have a dad and so I was like painfully lonely and would just sort of keep myself busy with this weird fantasy life right and then I remember having those, which which was what it was I I would play I was acting in my room playing out characters I would just sort of venture off into these deep fantasy. I love daydreaming and imagining what my life would eventually be like. Sure. And that's why I love TV too, because I was a latchkey kid and the TV sort of raised me in a weird way. And it wasn't, and again, like my mom was truly the greatest, but just there was only so much that she could do. And I I wanted a bunch of siblings and I wanted a dad to go do guy shit with and right. take me to Little League and it wasn't going to happen, but... As soon as I, I remember a buddy of mine, Connor, um, growing up in New York, and his dad Joe was just like the best. And he was one of those dads that immediately took me and could see that I needed somebody, and was like, "I'm not gonna have any of this." Like, even though I should have like a healthy separation from you because you're not my kid. Like, no, I'm gonna treat you just like my son. So he would like take us to sports and take us to to different video game places and feed us and also like, you know, yell at us <laughs> at the same time. But I I never felt like he was mad at me. I was like, oh God, I'm so included. Yeah. Like dad's <laughs> mad at me too, Connor. Can what you believe it? What a hell it? of a guy to do that. Right. You know, do you still keep in touch with those guys? I know. I mean, it. Um, eventually we sort of, because I moved to LA and, and we had a bit of a separation, but for those two or three years, it was like... Man, this is just so, like... Have you ever thought of, like, uh, boy, it would be nice to go back and just thank that guy? Because now knowing this about you, like, wouldn't it be cool to just go back? You'd probably make that guy's day. Like, you have no idea how much you impacted my life in a good way, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's those apostles. I mean, now that you're a grown man, it's like, right. you know, hearing that, it's like, wow, that's that's really cool that a guy... Stepped up to the plate like that, saw that, and, you know, gave that back to you. Right. How cool. Yeah. And it wasn't like in a... Because I would notice some guys, friends, dads, who would be... Would know that I didn't have a dad. And so they would try to put on an air about them. Like, well, come come over here, son, and let me give you, you know, the things you're missing out on. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, this doesn't need to be a concerted effort. Just treat me like you treat your kid. Yeah. Like, you know, you yeah. And that's well, what Joe did. Yeah. You, yeah, you had a void and he filled that. Do you, so you're growing up and you're playing hockey and you're having, also I'm interested to hear, because I made a movie in Michigan. I'm a big fan of that state. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Michigan people. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Do you think that's, I mean, you're a good dude and you have this energy about you that's so Midwest, like, you're a can of corn, Dave. You're just fucking, <laughs> you're a good guy. And I feel like that must have been slightly influenced from where you came from. Well, you know, I had very humble beginnings. Our house was 900 square feet. Yeah. But everybody's house was 900 square feet where I grew up. So it just, I, we didn't know we were poor. We didn't know, you know, all the dads worked at Chrysler or Ford or General Motors, you know. And they it was were a blue company collar, town. Yeah, blue collar guys in Detroit and... Um, you know, but I never felt poor. I always played hockey and I went on hockey trips and, you know, um, it, the Midwest is a great place to be from. And 
And I have a theory about it. I, I think places that when there's five hard months of bad weather, winter, <laughs> right? you, you know, you tend to come together and you're at someone's house, uh, you know, someone's ordering pizzas or you're helping your neighbor shovel snow. Hmm. You're spending a lot of time together because you're not going outside. Right. You know, as a kid, you could play out, but kids don't really play outside anymore. But in the Midwest, when the weather sucks, you tend to kind of band together, you know. And in California, I don't see that same thing because you can go out and you do stuff and you don't really, you're not indoors, you're not, it, that, that's kind of my little theory about it. Right. And and it just tends to kind of pull people together. And there's a certain Midwest sensibility i don't know if it's just um more grounded in some way because it tends to be a little more blue collar than than the east coast or the west coast yeah do you think i mean in the 70s growing up there this was i mean detroit was was it thriving i mean i feel like it was sort of towards the end of its moment but it was still thriving right well i went through i was born in 59 so i saw the riots happen in detroit Mm. which was a really tough time in the 60s late 60s and so it was it was very strange because we had the riots in detroit the national guard came into detroit with tanks right and there was so much civil unrest at the time and then the tigers win the world series in 68 so it was just really a weird time you know uh uh, politically socially um so motown's over at that point well motown was still kind of cranking out hits you know um you know so we had we had cklw which was a canadian station all they played was motown music it was all the motown hits all the time love it so i grew up thinking i was black you know (laughs) same here Good. So yeah, I knew all the Supremes dance steps. I knew Martin the Temptations. The Vandellas. Oh, I knew all Come that on, stuff. It's I knew the best. I knew all that stuff, and and uh, y- you know, Motown music was like Detroit. It was like that was our music. You know, it was kind of the soul of the city. Yeah. Uh, but it was, uh, it was, it was a a really great place being in the suburbs of Detroit to grow up because we had we had hockey and we had the lakes and. In the winter, you'd skate outdoors. Everybody skated on the lakes when it froze. And then in the summertime, everybody had their boats. And and it was just, it was a really great place as a kid to grow up. Right. Um, and, and I'm really thankful that I had all that stuff to kind of, you know, sink my energy into instead of kind of, if I really pulled back and was objective about my life, then I would say, wow, kid, you, your home life is really screwed up. Sure. But it doesn't it doesn't feel that when you're in when you're in the moment, it's sort of like you have these weird emotional guards that come up. Yeah. Like these blinders that don't allow you to see too far left or right. Exactly. It's exactly. just like, no, nope, everything's fine. Yes, <laughs> the house is fucked, but how about that hockey game earlier? Oh, I know. <laughs> right. And that's that's what I thought about constantly. I was never home. I was never home. I was always out on my bike somewhere, swimming at some kid's house or playing baseball or hockey in a driveway or so I just I was constant motion of having fun and trying to overpower all the negative shit I was going to go home to well that's what and I can't wait to hear your thoughts that's what kills me about nowadays and I'm going to sound like an old man but with the advent of like 
Postmates and convenience and I find like so many kids have less of a desire to venture out and explore They'd rather have it brought into the house. It's so comfortable and who needs a license when mom will drive me wherever I want or right. I can get uber Right, but for me as an only child the moment I I was allowed to leave the house I was like, oh my god the world's at my fingertips. Oh, yeah I've got people and friends and I can have a license and drive <laughs> somewhere like yes, let's go like It's so changed Whenever I see kids playing basketball in a driveway or at a field throwing a baseball or playing hockey in the street or riding their bikes, just doing anything where their thumbs aren't on a device, uh-huh. it makes me smile every time. And, uh, you know, I think, that, uh, I think that giving kids a phone is kind of the worst thing you can do. Right. Because right away, they're off into it. You've propelled them into a whole different world that someone's going to spoon feed them electronically. Whereas when we were kids, you had to create your own world. Right. You had to create that stuff. And I just, I, you know, and, and when I see kids sitting at a dinner table on their phones with their parents, it just, it just makes me sad, you know. And sure, I'm from a different era, but, you know, I, ne- I never had apps when I was a kid. Like, my favorite app was the playground. You could go... To the playground, you could add a friend. You know, sure. You could delete a friend. You're a dick. I'm deleting you. I'm, I'm leaving you. you a comment right to your face. <laughs> right. You know, uh, you know but uh, certainly the world has changed. I'm not, I'm not saying it's for the better. I'm not saying that all electronics are bad. But I think when it starts to greatly displace the creativity uh, that you can manufacture yourself, I think that that is a grave injustice. So you have this life and you decide that you're going to... When When is the moment where you feel like you're going to make the leap to L.A. and start really going for... Did you start doing stand-up in, in Michigan? I started doing stand-up... Uh, actually, Mark Sandrowski and I wrote a live sketch show our senior year. We had a group called Linus Pauling and the Band, and we did a two-hour... Uh, like Monty Python sketch show at the all girls high school next door to us. Right. And that's when I really got hooked because I did three stand up segments throughout that. And we had like 800 people come to this show and we advertised it ourselves and made our own props and everything. And that's really where I got hooked. But then uh, I went to a college prep high school and then everybody graduated. And I thought there's nothing at any college for me. Right. Because I want to stand on stage and tell jokes and I want to write funny things and I want to do character voices. Where do I go? So I got a job at a rock station in Detroit. I started writing funny commercials and doing the voices on commercials. So I would do, you know, I would do Bullwinkle or I would do Popeye in a commercial and they loved it because suddenly here was somebody who was doing unique voices on their commercials. And so they tried to offer me a job there, but my whole my whole uh, focus was I'm going to do stand-up here. And then a place called the Comedy Castle opened in Detroit. And so I started I started working out there, put an act together, and I did that for, uh, I did that for about eight months, and I was also moonlighting as a, as a, um, uh, a detailer at a, at a mechanical engineering firm. Cute. I faked my way in and I would sit at a drawing board and I would work 72 hours a week. And then at night I would go and do sets. And that was the comedy castle was the first place that you ever did comedy officially. There were, well, there were a couple of little 
one-nighter places that had Bars. new talent nights. Okay. And I would go there. And I opened for a guy named Jim Freeman, who was a big local Detroit comic who did uh, filthy song parodies. Okay. And I opened for him at a place called The Poor Devil. And the only reason I met him was because I was a I was as a side job I was a hockey referee I would referee kids games, mm. and so the head of the hockey uh, league said, "Hey, I know Jim Freeman, and you're funny, and I know you want to do stand up. I'm going to talk to him and see if you can open for him." So I went and I opened for him, and uh, I, his audience is all women. So I'm up there, and they introduce me, and. Uh, I'm about 10 minutes into my act and I'm getting a couple of laughs here and there. And all of a sudden a waitress comes up and hands me a note and I'm like, Oh, a request. And it said, get off the fucking stage. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, I still fuck. have that napkin. No, is it framed? I, it's in a, it's in a scrapbook. Uh, I should frame it actually. They couldn't have given you some signal or you were no. like, get off the fucking stage. And I read it. And I went, get off the fucking stage. And everybody laughed. And I was like, good night. Great. It was the biggest laugh I got. Kind of hooked you up. It, it, it a did. A little bit. And then afterwards, he said, hey, I watched you, and uh, you were really funny. And he gave me a $100 bill. And I thought, wow. Come on. This is exactly what I need to be doing. Yes. A $100 bill. Uh, years later, after I had done Full House and The Tonight Show and all this stuff, I'm playing the Comedy Castle in Detroit and sitting at the bar as this really gruff-looking, frail guy. It was Jim Freeman. Right. And he goes, I remember when you opened for me, I just wanted to come out and say, congratulations. You did it, kid. And it Man. was so cool. Yeah. And I said, you have no idea how much a, that little spark you gave me that night ignited a brush fire inside of me. And had he not, who knows? Yeah. Who knows what would happen? And then you make the leap to L.A. And do you mean, I mean, because it's sort of you have had the storied job of many of the great comedians which is being a door guy at the comedy store which it seems like Mitzi that was sort of her way of making you pay your dues right it was and she knew that if if comics canceled which they did a lot because they were cokeheads and potheads and drunks sure they would cancel and then she knew I could take their 10 minute slot right. so she said I'm gonna give you more stage time and you're going to be a doorman at Westwood. And it was true. She was exactly right because comics wouldn't show up and I'd have to fill 10 minutes. So I'd go up and some nights I'd be able to do an hour, but it would be six different 10 minute sets. Right. Which was all I wanted. I just wanted to be on that stage. So it worked out great. Did you ever in the same night kill on stage and then have to put like a drunk in a headlock and get him out of the club. Uh, you know, I was, I was really, I was like 150 pounds soaking wet. So I never had to do that, but I, I just used to seat people. Ah. And then sometimes, you know, I'd seat people and then they'd see me up on stage and I'd hear them go, isn't that the doorman? <laughs> That's <laughs> like, yeah. You're like, I probably should have remembered to take off my jacket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then what do you, what do you love and what do you I, I what do you love and what do you hate about comedians now like do you find that comedians have changed or do you find that yeah i love comedy and i love watching new comedians i think so many of them are so brilliant yes uh so i love seeing people that i've never seen before be brilliant I, I it makes me so happy that the process is still out there going and that there is this um 
there is this super energy of comedians who still want to, you know, comment about the world. What I don't like right now is, uh, is the audience. Right. The audience right now kind of pisses me off. I do a lot of college dates. And they're so fragile. They're so fragile. And, you know, there are certain buzzwords that a college audience, um, which is a unique audience because they're kind of all at the same point in their lives, whereas a comedy club, you get a mixture of people, or a casino, you get a mixture, or a performing arts center. There's just a whole, you know, a, a very wide demographic. A tableau, perhaps. Yes. And then you go to a college and... Uh, they're they're very kind of uh, selective with what they want to hear, mm. and you know I I've had to kind of come up with a show that's an hour and twenty minutes that's right down the middle of their sweet spot because there's a lot of stuff I've had to toss away that uh, they deem controversial. Right, and I can just say the words. I can do a setup of a joke just saying the words Middle Eastern, and then I'll go ooh. Like you guys don't even know what what I'm gonna and at that say point now. it's finished. It's finished. Yeah, it's over. So I've kind of taken out all the buzzwords that that uh, that they react to, right? And I just kind of just do funny stuff because and, it, and I'm I'm kind of a glorified birthday clown. Well, the a high paid <laughs> birthday. No. Amy Schumer presents Three Girls, One Keith. Let's you be a fly on comedy's filthiest wall. Each week, Amy joins her friends and fellow comedians, Bridget Everett, Rachel Feinstein, and Keith Robinson for candid conversations about sex, culture, and stand-up comedy. It's your typical hard-hitting, educational roundtable, except with reoccurring segments like, Okay, Now I'm Horny. With the help of songs, games, and special guests, Amy and her friends explore their very singular, very NS, SFW perspectives on the world. Get your mind into the gutter with comedy's greatest girl gang, plus Keith. Stream the all-new second season of Amy Schumer Presents Three Girls, One Keith, now on Spotify. I mean, you know, Bill Burr talks about that. Like, the whole idea of comedy was the ability in which to take taboo Mm -hmm. subject matter and give an insight to it, humanize it in some way, and make it... exactly. Make it acceptable, and not only acceptable, but funny. And I feel like, you know, it's interesting too, and, and I do some like college speaking gigs, and I'm always very conscious of, of my audience and making sure, and, and not that I would ever go too far left or right anyway, that's just not my way. But what I found interesting is in the, this time in which we live in, and the diversity initiative, and Me Too, and all these things that are so important and good that are happening... White men are having an experience right now. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> and that we've never had. And is it a comeuppance? Is it long in coming? It, yes, it's all those things. But the best thing that, come at, that can come out of this for us is great comedy. It's great artistry. But yes. I, I worry sometimes that we're not allowed to make fun of even ourselves and the experience. Like They're like, no... Take it, and you're not even allowed to joke about it. I, I, I Josh, you know I, I mean? wholeheartedly agree with you. What comedy has always done is, is it's peeled away the the layers of you know the social strata so that we could laugh at it. 
so that we can laugh at ourselves, that we can cross the line to show how preposterous something is. It allows us to laugh at ourselves and in a way that no other medium can really do. Um, you know, the Lenny Bruce's of the world, the George Carlin's, the Richard Pryor's, the Sam Kennison's, the, the Chris Rock's, you need those, the Louis, um, the Bill Burr's, you need those comedians to kind of be a check and balance for us as a society. Right. And when you can no longer peel away the layers, uh, you're in big trouble because there have been you know, um, there have been pundits about, uh, you know, politics. Thank God that there's a, you know, a Stephen Colbert, that there's a Conan, that there's a Jimmy Kimmel, that there's a Jimmy Fallon, that there's, you know, a Samantha B. that there's all of these people who really just take shots at the world. Right. Because the world needs to be shot at right now, big time. And, and a metaphorically, you know, metaphorically speaking, I don't, you know, uh, it, it really is important that you uh, hold up the mirror to society right. because society needs to see that awful picture and and laugh at it. And some of the greatest comedy ever has come from struggle and a certain group of people or what ha- it, the experience of people that have been marginalized or kept down in certain ways and them figuring out a way in which not only to make light of it, but also sort of um, enlightening people to their experience. And I find that if you disqualify people from, from being funny about the experience, it, it will show itself in anger and frustration. Yeah. And you're dead on there. And, and I think that, um, I think that it's a shame that this generation will never have a Don Rickles. Right. Who made fun of everybody. Right. And, uh, you know, I've been to Don Rickles' shows over the years when he was performing, and I laughed at myself. I laughed at other people. And the whole room, whether they were Asian, black, white, Indian, I don't care what your race, creed, or color was, you laughed at each other. Mm. And somehow that that kind of balanced everything out. There was a couple Swahili's that didn't laugh. I was there. <laughs> yes, they were in true. the corner. A couple of yeah, <laughs> there was a couple and some Aborigines, some Eskimos that were happy. fucking pissed. Oh, those Inuit jokes. God, oh, yeah. <laughs> they weren't having it. <laughs> but do you feel like? And your son is is in his early twenties. He's uh, twenty seven, and he's a he just made captain. Uh, he's a pilot at Sky Skywest Airlines. Wow. Yeah. So it seems like he, so he's missed it, but like for my kids and whatnot, I sometimes take umbrage with the idea of this whole, you know, the anti-bullying of it all and that everyone's a winner and there are no losers. And it's like, God, it's like, yes, I can understand why at the core of this is a good thing. And yet I feel so, um, I, I feel that I, my entire life has been so sort of crafted by losing and the tough realities of the world yeah you rising above i was a i was a hockey coach for a number of years i coached my you know um, kids hockey and and uh the parents were so hell-bent on winning and i said you know we're i'm not here and neither is my my uh other coach we're not here to teach your kids how to win right and you'd look at these parents and they're like what are you talking about I'm here to teach your kid the lesson of losing. 
<laughs> yes. Because you, you learn the lesson in the loss. You don't really necessarily learn the lesson in the win so strongly. Yeah. When you lose, you have to be graceful about it. You have to realize why you lost. When you win, you don't realize why you win. Right. Oh, we played well. Yeah. Okay, great. When you lost, you have to say, here's why we lost. And you start building those blocks to put the loss together. And you have to relive the loss, you know, so that you can get better. Don't learn if, anything on a good day. Yeah, you know, and it's like when you tell every kid they're a winner, you are setting them up for the biggest fail later in life because later in life, not everyone's a winner. Yes. And also, I think there's, you know, there's just certain aspects of, of sort of the way, you know, life demands balance and the universe demands balance. So as sure as the great times are coming, the bad times will follow. Yeah. And we all spend so much of our time in projection of like, oh, God, like when the storm comes, like, baby, it's coming. Yeah. So you better find meaning in it. I, for one, have failed my way to success. Right. For every one job I've gotten, I've had 50 failed auditions and crappy meetings and terrible stand-up showcases. And, you know, but I would go back to the drawing board and go, why did I lose? Why? What, what is wrong here that I'm not doing right? Or how did I, you know, how did I screw this up so badly? Mm. And then, uh, you know, uh, you savor the victory so much more when you figure that out. You know what the silver lining in it has been for me? It's realizing that even the most successful famous people are miserable too. (laughs) God, that at least makes it all worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I guess in closing and and what I'm so interested in, there seems to be a level of, and maybe I'm projecting of contentment to you. And obviously I know John very well and I've gotten to know Bob and you. And of the three, (laughs) you seem truly content and that... There, you have a deep love for comedy and what it is you do, but also like there's a little bit of you that could take it or leave it. Is that right? Yeah, um, because I, I still have the friends that I've had since uh, day one. Mm. I've, I've always um, brought my friends and family along on the journey because I thought, hey, it'd be really cool if you guys can come with me on this silly ride that I'm on. Right. So I've never forgotten that, which I love. And I think that I still enjoy the things that I've always enjoyed, which is I love flying airplanes. I love playing hockey. I skated this morning. You're I love such a man. I love fishing. I love going out all day and fishing on a boat. I love uh, Real playing around the golf. Of, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I just, I, I still enjoy all the things that I've always enjoyed. I never, ever wanted to trade those people or those relationships or those interests because I'm doing, I'm doing something in show business. And so... I'm very content with what I have. If showbiz left tomorrow, I still have this wealth, this treasure trove of things that I still love and people that I still care about. So you're right. If showbiz goes away, and it has a couple times in my career. For all of us. uh, I'm fine with that, you know? Yeah. I don't seek it out. It seems like showbiz has always kind of found me in some way. Um, In you know, I've put myself in that place to be found, but, um, 
I maybe uh, maybe it's the Midwestern thing, but uh, I'm pretty pretty darn happy. I got a great kid. I got a great wife and really great and wife. You, thank you. And oh, uh, I only say really great because I haven't met your son yet, but I imagine he's really <laughs> great too. He's a good kid. He's a good kid, and he he doesn't drink or do drugs. And well, uh, how can we change you know, that? You know, I'm, can we? I, I have to do a you know I have to do a, a genetic DNA test. I think because well, he might not be mine. <laughs> we'll stop by Bob's medicine cabinet. Okay. <laughs> right. Get him a couple goodies. Right. <laughs> Pass it along. Go in his Elvis kit and pull something out of the Elvis kit. Yeah. Um. So in closing. Will you please give us a hand fart of a character of my choosing? Absolutely. Yes. Thank you. Um, okay. So I choose. This is really tough. Um, Chrissy Teigen. Chrissy Teigen. Okay. While in the middle of filming a new episode of Lip Sync Battle. Okay. The cameras are rolling and she is trying to just let one... Let one fly without anyone noticing. Okay, she's standing or sitting at this point. She stands on the show. Mostly. She stands on the show. Yes. She's wearing shorts or long pants. I would imagine like a pencil skirt, like a maxi skirt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here we go, Chrissy Teigen. All right, um, here we go. <clears throat> Close your eyes, those of you listening. Here we go. <laughs> That was incredible. <laughs> it's like she's here. That's how real that sounded to me. I just... Wow. I feel pretty complete, and <laughs> I'm also greedy, so it leads me to... Can I have just one more? Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. In the spirit of lip sync battle, <laughs> LL Cool J. <laughs> oh. Okay. He's now done with the taping. Okay. He's in his dressing room. Okay. And he's let, I mean, he's, he had a big lunch. His stomach has been in knots, but he's a true pro and he's held it back for hours. <laughs> and now he's finally allowed to let it fly. Here we go. <clears throat> he's sitting on a couch. Yeah. It's LL Hot J. <laughs> and apparently the couch is made of uh, polyester. It probably has plastic covers on it. Uh, thank you, Dave Coulier. Of course, Josh. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. That's it. That's the pod. That's my podcast. That happened. That was incredible. Dave, thank you for doing it. Everyone, thank you for listening. Have an incredible rest of your week. And don't listen to the haters. And I don't know who the haters are for you. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's someone at work. Or maybe it's just that voice inside. Maybe you're your own hater, right? And you can't turn off that shitty committee that tells you why you're not enough. Well, allow me to turn the volume down on that and say, you are enough, champ. You're more than enough. And everything you do, it doesn't go unnoticed because Uncle Josh notices. Oh, my God. It's so creepy when I call myself Uncle Josh. Anyway, guys, have an incredible week. I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye.